Cricketer Dennis Lilly held the world record for test wickets once upon a time, was consistently the most feared, most hostile and most unrelentingly competitive fast bowler of his generation, was a handy bat on occasions, even if it was sometimes aluminium, and could certainly generate a headline including the infamous Sunday Telegraph's legendary line, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, if Thompson don't get you, Lily must. And the fact that phrases like that and court marsh bowled Lily have entered the Australian vernacular even many years on, still recognisable. Lily's menace, his mo, his flowing hair, the gold chain on the chest, the steely determination and the swagger, he still occupies a really special place in Australian culture and in many ways was the image of the Australian male of the 1970s and beyond. But the world has changed a bit since then, and so has the legendary DK Lilly. Like just about everyone in Australia, he has a connection to a men's shed. And like all of us, he is facing the greatest opponent of all, Father Time. And as I understand it, he's as likely to be wielding a pair of tongs or maybe a corkscrew as he is a piece of willow these days. I am truly delighted to welcome to the shed wireless, Dennis Lilly. Hello, DK. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thanks so much for your generosity with your time. When was the last time you sent down a cherry? <laughs> I wouldn't exactly call it a, a cherry. Um, it was probably a tennis ball in the in the backyard with the, the grandies. And let me tell you, it, um, it came out like a blancmange bullet, and I thought, <laughs> and it hurt. <laughs> so that was the end of that. That was probably about oh, five years ago. Oh, that long, really? And how old are your grandkids now? One's 16, one's uh, 14, and the other one's nearly eight. Are they cricketers? Uh, no, no, but they didn't mind having holding a pat and bowling a ball down. Just I guess everyone sort of just Christmas time, that, that sort of situation would happen uh, to run off a bit of the, the Christmas pudding. But no, none of them actually played. They played different sports and very good academically, so they're into it. And you see a bit of them, do you? Yeah, it's um, as much as we can, obviously. Um, so it's a great part of life when it gets to grandchildren. Um, you know, we'd be able to sort of spoil them and then hand them back. And the parents have to sort out the problem. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do they have any sense of who you were? I, I, yeah, I think they do. I don't know about the youngest one. We, you know, it's never brought up. I never bought anything to do with cricket home, <clears throat> even to, you know, our kids. Cricket was a separate part, really, although I'm sure they, you know, I know they knew, but I never talked about it, never, never discussed a game or anything to do with it, really, at home. But beyond the cricket aspect of it, the celebrity aspect of it, it must have been something of a challenge for your boys to have grown up being your son, not necessarily for anything that happened at home, but for the way they were perceived from the outside. Did you and your wife have to address that? Yeah, we were very aware of it from uh, from really young age. Uh, when they could understand things, we, we pointed out that, you know, they may be uh, given special attention, they may, you know, have... have uh, People want to get close to them. They may even have people that don't like me and therefore take it out on them. Fortunately, that didn't happen. And they were they went in full arms. So they, they've handled it very, very well and were prepared, I guess, for whatever may happen. Um, but it, it, it was like, I'm sure it was 95% positive. And what about them and sport? Back in 99, quite famously, you and Adam got to share a pitch when you both played. It was against the Pakistanis, I think, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was a, a called a first class game. It was a pipe opener to the tour, and and Lilac Hill in Perth uh, used to have a pipe opener game um, against the touring side. And I to try and get some publicity for it, and I, I suppose help get a crowd there. Um, I was basically the sort of <clears throat> patron who played in all of those games right from the start. And at fifty. <laughs> I said to, to Adam, who'd just been playing some third and fourth grade cricket, I don't know how old he was, I think he was about 20, maybe 22, 21, I don't know, he'd been playing some, some cricket. I said to him, look, you know, I'd love to play a game of cricket with you, a good game of cricket with you. I said, this is going to be my last game. Um, you know, <clears throat> I just wanted to, you know, see if you'd, you'd like, you still, I'd love to do that. I said, look, I've got to warn you, there's, um, these guys are test players. You know, like you're playing third and fourth grade. It could be a bit daunting. He said, no, I can only do my best. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in. So he was wrapped. And he took a screamer off you and got a couple of wickets himself, didn't he? Oh, yeah, Bob, very well. I think he got two or three wickets. Um, I think we had Pakistan five for 25 at one stage when they uh, said, <laughs> they went to our captain and said, call off the dogs. I guess we were the dogs. But, uh, so they they put on some part-timers and, um, you know, otherwise probably not, not have been too good of a game. And Adam was fi- fielding its fine leg and I early on I bowled a bouncer to the opener and uh, the guy, it was qu- quite close to Sean head and so he sort of got a bit of shoulder of the bat on it and it went flying down to fine leg and it's a smallish ground at Lilac and Adam ran in full of endeavour um, and only to have to go back a couple of places and throw himself madly right and this catch uh, stuck. I just said to him, mate, you should have just, Dad was going to look after you, stay where you, you should have stayed where you were, would have put it straight down your throat, you know, going to put it straight down your throat. He said, Dad, in third and fourth grade cricket, he said, they don't hit them that well. He said, uh, or don't, you know, they don't carry that far. He said, I just thought I had to run like mad to get to it. Uh, so, um, anyway, it, it ended up well. I have seen the footage, and he looks down at his hand and sees the ball in it, and he couldn't have been happier if it was a gold bar. <laughs> He's pretty pleased that it stuck. I oh, know, it was an exciting moment. Please tell me that if you came on and bowled at the start of the season at the age 50, the rib cage must have been sore the next day, mustn't it? No, I wasn't bad, because, see, I, funnily enough, I'm a bit, a bit fanatical like that. I don't want to embarrass myself. So I train, I always train before those those games for two months. I mean, really trained. And uh, bowled a lot in the nets and, and did lots of, um, well, I, I ran anyway, did lots of running and lots, lots of uh, Pilates and stuff like that. So to get my body in reasonable shape because, it, you know, obviously at that age you're not going to be like you were at 25. No. And fast bowling is one of those things that no matter whether you're in great nick or terrible nick, you have to do it to do it, don't you? It tests muscles and joints that nothing else quite does. It engages all of your body. So, you know, right from your, your toes right up to your head. So, yeah, I mean, you just have to you have to actually do the action regularly to get into the sort of shape that it should be to bowl, you know, for 20-odd overs or 25 overs in a, in a game. I hope you don't mind me mentioning that you recently had your 71st birthday and like all of us, you are in that battle with Father Time. How do you approach your health and fitness being quite a pioneer in your day? How do you approach that these days? Well, I probably never stopped. I never stopped doing something and I I always thought that, you know, you've got to keep the machine running, keep the motor running. I've always thought that. I, you know, you, there's a little thing. I mean, you know, we clean our teeth every day for the health of our teeth. Why don't we do something towards our body every day to, to sort of 
keep them as good a shape as our teeth, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So what does that look like in 2020 for you? You know, it's not bragging, but I'd say I'm as fit as most 71-year-olds, even around the world, because I do something towards it, or do the action regularly to get him into the sort of shape that it should be to bowl, you know, for 20-odd overs or 25 overs in a game. I hope you don't mind me mentioning that you recently had your 71st birthday, and like all of us, you are in that battle with Father Time. How do you approach your health and fitness being quite a pioneer in your day, how do you approach that these days? Well, I probably never stopped. I never stopped doing something. And I I always thought that, you know, you've got to keep the machine running, keep the motor running. I've always thought that. You know, there's a little thing. I mean, you know, we clean our teeth every day for the health of our teeth. Why don't we do something towards our body? every day to to sort of keep them as good a shape as our teeth, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So what does that look like in 2020 for you? You know, it's not bragging, but I'd say I'm as fit as most 71-year-olds, even around the world, because... I do something towards it all the time. I also let it go from time to time. I mean, I you know, if I want to have a big night um, on red wine or, um, you know, eat crap food or whatever every now and again, I do it. But in between times, we really, you know, try to sort of eat healthily. We have a, a day, a week, most weeks, where we, we go to a 600-calorie day and, you know, it, it's, it's used to be hard, but it's not too bad now. And that it's almost like cleansing as well. It's, it's not fanatical, but it's just keeping keeping the motor running, you know, even something small, a walk just to keep the motor going. Because it's not like, as you said, you live any life of austerity because in particular you enjoy a good Australian wine and and enjoy a bit of cooking as well as eating. Let's talk wines first of all. How did wines come into your life? Because you weren't always a drinker, were you? No, actually I was sort of considered a bit strange in the team because there was a beer culture, there's no doubt about that, and not just a Australian teams, it was all teams, and a lot of it was just that comradeship and that, you know, going to the dressing room with the opposition and having a chat, and, uh, you know, it, it was sort of an accepted thing for years. I didn't didn't drink, I didn't like the taste of beer, um, and, you know, that's what, what the guys drank. So, yeah, so I didn't drink much, and um, then we, Helen and I, Went, we were asked to go and open a bushing festival, I think it was in the Clare Valley years ago, 73 or 74 or something, maybe even earlier. And so we went there and you just do it if you want to. It's a nice trip for Helen and I. Um, it must have been around 72. And uh, anyway, we, we went to this festival, opened the festival, didn't have a drink, or we didn't drink, um, full strength Coca-Cola. And um, we got in, uh, got a lift to the plane, got in the plane, got home, and the, the baggage handler said, oh, you've got some excess luggage. And I said, no, we haven't. You know, we've, we've got it with us. And he said, no, 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 you've got a lot of excess luggage. There was 12 dozen bottles of the finest reds and whites from the Clare Valley, uh, which, what are we going to do with this? So we lived in a weatherboard and asbestos house, no cellar. Obviously, it heated up dramatically during the summer and got cold as hell during the winter. We stuffed them all under beds and in cupboards and um, didn't touch them for years. And then when we finally sort of started to have a few um, wines or friends came over and we opened a few, a lot were gone, obviously, but there were some lovely surprise packets there. So that was the start of it. And from that moment on, your appreciation has grown? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it was just in those days, you know, you just had it socially, a, you know, a glass or two, you know, I think even leap from mulch or something like that. Was the Black Tower? <laughs> Blue Nun, maybe was it? Benin, <laughs> Matus Rose. You know? <laughs> Not so much a good year as a good month. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
you know, we didn't really get into it much until much later when I came across um, a, a guy uh, called Basil Salad. And, and we also went to Yolumba in the rest days of, of, of cricket matches in Adelaide, and you sort of got a little bit of a taste for it there. Basil introduced me to really good wines and how to appreciate them and how to, how to uh, rate them and, and uh, store them and get a salad and you know, all that sort of stuff. So it, it, it just gradually. And then we went and did a wine appreciation course and, uh, later on. That was sort of you know, probably in our 40s. So yeah, it just grew slowly, and now I've got to, it's my it's my hobby is um, is uh, wine, you know, and, and cellaring. That's something you share with Helen, is it? Because I'm interested. You you guys have been together a long time, and you've been, dare I say it, quite a few different people over the course of that life. She's been a mum, and then a professional. You were a professional cricketer, and then a retired cricketer, and had various other jobs as well. So how important is stuff? like that for having a common interest well Helen didn't really drink much at all but she went along to the one appreciation course and enjoyed that and gradually started to have a bit of a sip of mine and then you know she, she, we now probably have we share a, a bottle over two days so we have half a bottle between us one day and half a bottle between us the next day and then if we go out we might have a little bit more and I might have a lot more you know so um <laughs> It just depends on the occasion. Perhaps a lot of people mightn't appreciate this, and given that many of the men listening to this interview may be transitioning out of a long career in a certain area and then having to reinvent themselves somewhat, you had to do that in a fashion much earlier in life. You were Dennis Lilly, the international cricketer, and then all of a sudden you were Dennis Lilly at home while your wife went back and studied. Yeah, it was quite a shock, really, to the system. Helen decided to go back to uni and get a degree and the kids were, well, I don't know, they were probably 14 and 12, I'm not sure, but it was, you know they're going to high, I think just going to high school about, about to go to high school and um, we agreed that I would do that for a couple of years or three years until she got a degree or at least broke the back of it before doing it part time. I can always remember I'd been to England for some work and uh, I, I sort of arrived back, you know, as you do, 2 or 3 in the morning in Perth, Helen picked me up and got home, got about, you know, I was in a deep sleep and I got this sort of, well, well well, it's 7 o'clock. Today happens to be a washing day, so we've got to do all the washing sheets and the towels and whatever. And um, I'm off to uni. I've got to have a quick breakfast and off to uni. And I said, but, 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 but I don't even know. I, I, I couldn't turn the washing machine on. I don't know how to turn it on, which was not quite right. But I said, she said the instructions are down there. I'll see you at five. <laughs> That was it. That's a pretty grounding process. How did you cope with all of that? I tell you what. Well, it was it was difficult. Um, you know, I, I was the one that had a headache at night. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was quite an experience. Uh, and I look, I really enjoyed it. And I said to um, look, you know, what well, now that you know I'm doing this, and I, I still had my work to do, which because we had an office at home and still very busy with that. And uh, I said, oh no, but during the day, I said, you know, well, I might be doing bits and washing and cleaning and all that sort of stuff. I'll, you know, I'll have someone from the street down for afternoon tea or morning tea, you know, every couple of days. Well, let me tell you, in two, three years, it never happened once. Didn't have time. Full appreciation for home duties, I can tell you. In hindsight, though, that would have been valuable time with your boys that a lot of professional 
I use the term advisedly because you weren't necessarily making a lot of coin out of it, but it's something that's denied to a lot of professional athletes. Yeah, it is. But remember, I wasn't professional. Um, and the other thing was that when I was home and decided to actually, well, with World Series cricket, we did uh, cricket full time. You know, I was there in the mornings and saw them off to, you know, school, breakfast off to school. And at the end of the day, I was there as well. So I spent a lot of good quality time with them in a certain period of time. They're probably from World Series cricket onwards. But early on, you miss a lot of it. And I worked, you know, we you know, we had jobs. We, we worked nine to five, basically. I worked in the bank for eight. Yeah, it was probably like most other other um, fathers, really, except later on, I got to spend a lot more time with them. Do you have much to do with cricket these days? I know you were with the Wacker for a while and quite famously supporting, mentoring some of our emerging fast bowlers. What's cricket to you in 2020? Yeah, it was certainly not the Wacker. Um, I've, uh, I've moved on from there. Um, disappointingly, I'd say. Not that I'm not there anymore, but just in uh, what what happened. It ended suddenly, didn't it? Yeah, I walked out, basically. We'll leave it at that. Anyway, the I still keep these young lads that have show promise. That I'm, I'm happy to sort of show them or work with them with their, their techniques or actions to get them right for going forward. And I also have helped over the years the, the likes of Mitchell Johnson, Cummings and Stoke Stark, you know, a few of those other guys. If they've had problems, and usually I get them when they're on, not on the scrap heap, but when they're, they're sort of badly injured or whatever and they need to sort of address technical issues in their, in their bowling action. So I, st- I still do a bit of that, but it's not a paid uh, job. I just do it if I want to and, uh, and I love what I do. So that's my involvement nowadays. You know, guys like Brett Lee and all those guys that had a, a lovely uh, Watson, lovely sort of relationship with them as far as uh, they could ring any time and send videos over any time and come and visit any time. And you know, it, it was yeah, it was a lovely involvement. I still do a bit of it, but uh, I don't seem to get the younger ones now if they've got problems in the team. You know, like the Australian or, or Shield guys. It's more the up and coming guys sort of coming through the ranks. You say that you hand pick them and that their attitude is a factor in whether or not you take them on. How much is a cricketer born and how much is a cricketer made? How much happens in the body and how much happens between the ears? I'm sure you're born to, to bowl fast. I don't think you can ma- manufacture that. I think people have tried over the years, but it's it's never worked. It, there's never been any results. You have to have a some sort of, well, yeah, first you have to have fast twitch muscles. You have to have a bit of endurance, you know, obviously because it's um, it's quite a... And then you have to have a, a, a good, good, strong action. So you can't just grab a bloke in the street as a big bloke and say, you know, you'll bowl fast and I'll teach you. That's impossible. No, but also you're not a big bloke. Like you're not quite six foot, are you? I'm, I'm well. I'm quarter Collingwood six footer, so that's probably about five eleven and three quarters <laughs> with your heels on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I don't wear them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I mean Brett Lee's not a big bloke either. Oh, he's maybe six one, six one. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah. Tomo was six one. Um, uh, you know, Lenny Pascoe probably six foot. Um, in those days, a lot were around the six foot mark. Six one, six one and a half was quite, you know, considered quite big. And then they got bigger. Very much so, particularly the West Indians. West Indies, gee, you know, they're six foot eight, six nine, six ten. But that's not enough, is it? When you're reminiscing here with me, you're not talking about oh how. You felt this happen or that happen in your body. It's all about what happened in your head and your self-talk and your attitude. And I mean, in many ways, you're as famous for that as anything else. 
Yeah, but you can't have that. Well, you can't you can't impose that if you haven't got sort of a, a good physical, you know, that you're physically fit and strong, uh, and and you haven't got a good technique. I mean, you can do it, but you won't do it for long. But then the mind, then the strength, strength of mind, the mental toughness, and and there's two parts to the mental mental toughness, and then there's that other side of the mental where you have to be able to work out a batsman. Um, you know, you've got to be able to sort of um, work out how to get him out. You've got to work out a secondary plan. You've got to work out if all that else fails, you starve them out in the field by setting good fields and things like that to frustrate them out if there's nothing in the wicket uh, or the ball's not doing anything. So the mindset is is very super important but you can't do that if you haven't got a technique that allows you to put the ball where you want to. Did you ever get down? As I say the mythology around you is that you were steely determined and fearsome competitor and all of that sort of thing but did you ever battle the demons? Yeah look I, it's only, only funny you should say this just the other day that John Inverdy who was my captain and we toured England in 72 when I had the you know the start of the back problems that he, he said he said I just remember one day walking at Old Trafford walking into the dressing room during a minor game or, you know, a lead-up game, county game, and you were crying your heart out from pain in your back. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I felt it like anyone. I had steely resolve in that I I believe, whether foolishly or rightly, that you can overcome most things if you work hard enough at it uh, and given a bit of luck. And so I didn't stay down for long. When you cast your mind back to your test debut, 1970-71, 5-84 from 28.3, eight ball overs. Does that seem like two weeks ago or a thousand years ago? Um, it's funny. I, I haven't thought much about it, but, but I, I suppose it doesn't seem that long ago. But then it seems like an eternity, you know? <laughs> it's it's clear in my mind that game. Not many other games are, but it's very clear in my mind that one. I know it was a long time ago, so yeah, it, it's 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 still there and still very clear. But you know, I don't I don't hang on it. I like to ask this of lots of our guests. Interpret it how you wish. If you could change any one thing, what would it be? I love the fact we played basically in an amateur era because it was a, a terrific lot of comedy, camaraderie, and all that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of fun. So that side of it um, was good. No. You know, not this pressure, but not not the pressure they probably get today because it's their job and they've got to hold their job down. I think, though, from the point of view of perfecting your art and being better, um, and we should all try and be better at whatever we we do. I think that from that point of view, to having to have it be able to do it full time like they do today, I just would have loved to have been a full time professional because I think that would have suited my game. You just to have the time to do not have to cram it between working and jobs. And, uh, you know, doing promotions and, you know, all those sorts of things would have been, would have just suited me as a person. Coming back to the men's shed movement, I said you have a shed connection. Is it a brother-in-law who, you know, who's a shedder? Yeah, Jim Masman, my brother-in-law, he's he's a shedder, dedicated shedder, and uh, he uh, he loves it, and he's very, very handy. He, he can do anything, turn his hand to anything. And so someone like that's very welcome. At, at a men's shed uh, but it also is good for him too he, he loves the involvement you know he also loves a bit of mentoring and, and I, it gets him out of the home out of the house and I think everyone as they get a bit older I think they've got to have a bit of their own space as well um, even when you're younger but certainly as you get older you don't want to be just 70 odd years of age crawling around the 
house, you know, looking for things to do. So, yeah, he's very involved there uh, and loves what he does. Given that you were concentrating on batting and bowling and fitness and then into a business career, I don't imagine you ever did an apprenticeship or spent that much time on the tools. How would you go if you wandered into a shed, do you think? Well, actually, I'd look forward to it. I, I did metalwork and woodwork at school and enjoyed it very much, really loved it. I can do a lot of menial stuff, but I, I'm not technically, if, ironically, I'm technically very good with fast, fast bowling, but I'm not technically very good with motors and, you know, all that, all those sort of uh, intricate things. But, you know, I can, I can do things like mean things and all the menial stuff. Um, I'm really a frustrated handyman and my, my, uh, nieces say that I could fix anything given some poly pipe and duct tape. So I've got a, I've got a bit of a name out there. Believe me, there's a place in a shed for you with those skills. Any shed will have you if you can do this. If you can hold it together with sticky tape and barbed wire, you've got a gig. Something that I, you know, I could look at maybe, but I, I, I do a lot around the house and we've got a hobby farm sort of thing, beach house hobby farm and uh, there's always things, fences and bobcats and, you know, tyres to be fixed and your, your ball breaks down and your pipes burst somewhere and you know so there's all those sorts of things as I said menial but but I enjoy the fact that I can have a go and most times go close to fixing them without having to you know get a mate to sort of come and give me some advice. You sound like you're still steaming into life DK. Yeah I mean I'm look as uh, when people say how old are you I say I'm only 71 um, and uh, you know I mean people say oh I'm 71 I say I'm only 71 well, I think I'm going well for 71 and I, I hopefully touch wood and, you know, no severe illnesses and keep fit, you, you can go for a while. I've got plenty of red wine to get through myself. There's, there's stuff they made 40 and 50 years ago that's just about ready to drink now. DK, uh, as you know, I reckon between the ages of maybe 6 and 15, I read every word that was ever written about you and uh, watched every ball that you ever bowled. So to have the opportunity to reflect on a life, albeit one with plenty of runs still left in it. It's been a true honour to spend some time with you and to learn a little bit about what life looks like for you in this day and age. And on behalf of Shedders across Australia, we're deeply appreciative of your time here on the Shed Wireless. No, very good. It was great to uh, to do the interview with you. It was, um, it was in, indeed a, a pleasure. And uh, I also sort of feel uh, that the Shedders do such a great job that I, I, was, I was glad to be involved. The legendary Dennis DK Lilly.